the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and he's here to say good afternoon to you, and if no one said it to you yet, may I be the first to say happy Valentine's Day. I would have gotten some roses for you, but wasn't quite sure how to get them through the radio. (laughs) Well, good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you on board. Tuesday edition, February the 14th of Lifeline. Let me start by saying to those of you that uh, were a part of our effort in partnering with Cross International to provide food and education for needy kids in Malawi and Zambia. We sure appreciate your great efforts. And I think all told, about 200 kids were rescued. So a pretty good day at the radio station overall. And again, thank you so much for your your cooperation and uh, your participation. Couldn't make it happen without you. So again, thank you so very much from all of us here at KFAX Radio. All right, a very important topic to talk about tonight. Um, I'm going to start with more specificity than, than perhaps the broader topic will allow, but it, I believe, will help illustrate a very critical point. There's a new ABC News Washington Post poll out that shows confidence in law enforcement hitting a new low on the heels of the Tyree Nichols killing by Memphis police a few weeks ago. This new poll indicating that just 41% of respondents felt they had any sense of confidence that the police treat citizens of white and black equally. 39% say they're confident that police are adequately trained. That also suggests that 41% don't believe that's the case. Now, if you wonder why this is important beyond the the obvious racial overtones of it all, maybe something that would help you better understand part of the problem here, aside from the need for better training, better screening, uh, obviously rooting out issues related to racism and prejudice in our country. Uh, But there's also another factor that seldom gets discussed, but maybe is one of the most critical aspects of this problem, which will help illustrate the broader topic today. And that is that as you look across the nation, on average, the dismissal rate of police. So this is the chief, the department saying, you're not working out for whatever reason, we're going to have to terminate you. Would would you at all be surprised if I told you the dismissal rate for police in the United States is two-tenths of one percent? What does that suggest? Well, that suggests that there is a virtual stranglehold that police unions have in essentially turning the tables 
where instead of having police officials, police chief, et cetera, et cetera, running the police department, you, you effectively had the rank and file having the last word. And a lot of this goes to the heart of how unions, public sector unions are run, the enormous bargaining power that they have, not only in terms of things like working conditions and wage and, and salary negotiations, but even to the heart in many circumstances of the unions actually having the capability of of electing their own bosses in political positions. Wow. How's that for turning the tables on what had been the original, at least, intent? And that was to bring a sense of parity for public employees. The big question is, how do we get in this fix? Well, some insights now by Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, is a syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. By trade, his background is in not only matters of of law and uh, and also numbers as a, a CPA as well. His passions include American history and one of the perhaps most educated individuals on the United States Constitution, certainly that I have ever met. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, airs nationally. But here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area, you can catch him Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on our sister station, AM 860, The Answer. Bob, as always, I'd like to have you with us. Thank you very much, Craig. You're very kind to invite me back. I appreciate it. You know, we look at this subject matter and and the story of police abuse, just sort of a, a microcosm of the grander topic. And we hear this all the time. People look at these events and say, why doesn't somebody do something about this? How do police officers manage to stay in these positions of authority for 10, 20, 30 years? Why is it that they don't get routed out much quicker? Don't don't the chiefs of police have the, the desire the concern or the the wherewithal to do it and i guess i guess that kind of goes to the heart of our discussion today and that is that in so many respects police unions across the country have such a stranglehold on how people get fired that as i suggested a moment ago with a dismissal rate of just two tenths of one percent you gotta know something's wrong craig you said uh uh, police unions, and we can speak more broadly and cover teachers and the teachers' unions, etc. But let's focus on police because that's where you have decided we'll start our discussion. You said police unions have a stranglehold. One would think that you were indicting, complaining about police unions. I find the problem, and there sure is one, is a bit more nuanced than that. It's not unions per se. Believe it or not, I, I can live with, and I would find to be fine, policemen and teachers having unions. It's not the unions per se. A union is nothing other than a club, an association, a membership group of people who have something in common. Unions are fine. However, what is not fine is the power of the unions, often by statute, sometimes by executive order, the power of the unions 
have in collective bargaining. Imagine unions that were allowed to exist Policemen could join, they could pay dues, just like you might join a chess club. You can do that and pay dues, because you have something in common with other chess players. Well, I have no problem with policemen or any other affinity uh, group banding together, because they have things in common. However, however, you use the phrase correctly, stranglehold, The stranglehold doesn't come from the fact that there is a union at all. It comes from the fact that the unions have the power to bargain on behalf of all other members, which means now they get control over the process. That's where the problem is. And let's take the fact that we complain about police officers, an incredibly small minority of all policemen, police officers who are bad at their job. They are bad, they might even be criminal in their behavior. But let's just take the more benign phrase, they're just plain bad at being a policeman. They don't get it. They don't do anything right. Well, well, you fire them because we, we'd like to think we live in a society that rewards merit. That if people are good, they rise up the ranks, and if they're bad, they have to go find another activity. Well, if we didn't have collective bargaining, which protects bad actors, policemen who are good at their job do not need protection, the city will reward them. It's the bad actors who need the protection. Who needs protection against being fired? Those people who otherwise are at risk of being fired because they're crappy in what they do. So therefore, police unions in protecting policemen from being fired are only protecting bad policemen. That's very, that's very unhealthy for good policemen because they are not rewarded. It's bad for society. And it's even bad for the bad police officers, because they should be doing something else which they're good at. So the problem lies primarily in collective bargaining. And what's so interesting about it is that if we focus on the specific problem of collective bargaining, we fix so much. We allow the unions, we allow the unions to collect dues, we allow policemen to join, and now we rely upon civil service protections, which basically protect people from being fired for the wrong reasons, if it works right. Civil service has its own problems. That's for another show, Craig. But we're focusing on you have decided the unions and how unions, public service unions, how they make life less present for everybody, including their own membership. And let me pause on that point, Bob, because we want to take a brief time out. When we come back, I want to drill down a little bit deeper because there's also a uh, you're, you're heading us into a direction that I think it will help us demonstrate an important point in the fundamental difference between organized 
union negotiations, collective bargaining in the private sector versus the public sector. And, and let me give you a bit of a hint. Part of the big problem, as I perceive it here, is, well, in one of those two sectors, making money, profits, is a central motivation, whereas in the other, not so much so. And, and that, in an awkward sense, I think is part of the fundamental problem here. If you've just joined us, we're talking about the challenge that organized labor unions have when they are working for the public sector not only find themselves in a position of extreme lack of accountability, but even in a position to be able to help to help hire their own bosses. And why that politicizing of the public service sector has become so problematic. Syndicated talk show host, best-selling author and lawyer, Bob Zadek with us tonight. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the discussion. Let me let me set up the next portion of our conversation with Bob Zadek this way. Um, I had a dear friend of mine that was part of the um, bargaining unit for the old NUMI, the old Toyota plant in in Hayward. And uh, at the point of which there were rumblings about potentially the plant being closed and Toyota pulling out of the market along with General Motors, uh, you know, this uh, engaged some conversation about how does this process work, etc., etc. And and one of the things that I was told was, you know, in 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 the interest of why don't you guys, you know, f- fight harder, go on strike, things of that sort. He said, look, he said, we, we have to kind of balance our interests here because it's one thing for us to sort of flex our union muscle and threaten to shut the entire plant down. The problem with that is that that could potentially backfire because, you see, we both have common interests. And the common interest is we need to manufacture trucks to sell trucks to make money so that not only does Toyota make money, but they also have money to in turn pay us. And so we have to be somewhat balanced. It's not just a matter of, you know, raising our fists and marching in protest and we're going to, you know, prove our our point, because after all, we're the union. Um, we have, yes, at certain levels, dissimilar interests, but we also have many interests in common. Well, certainly in free enterprise and in in the private business sector, that that makes perfect sense. What becomes problematic when it comes to government is. Um, uh, unlike potentiality of a union driving a business out of business and therefore nobody wins, uh, government can't go out of business. In, in fact, what they can do if they need more money is simply call on the taxpayer to pay more in order to satisfy the demands of the union. And so at the end of the day, you have to wonder Who's ultimately looking out after, we know who's looking out after the best interests of the union employees, but who's actually looking out for the best interest of the taxpayer? That's an important question, and maybe the critical dynamic here, Bob, that oftentimes gets left out. You're exactly right to focus on that difference between the public sector and the private sector. After all, in the private sector, a union cannot simply take the position 
increase salaries and pass the cost along to your customers or your suppliers or your shareholders. That works only in a limited range, but after all, if the unions do that with their employer, their employer will be uncompetitive, and as you correctly point out, obviously, that employer will fail. So the unions, they cannot make unlimited demands. They must pay attention to the effect of their demands upon their employer in the private sector. Compare that to the public sector. The public sector, the unions are negotiating with the politicians. The politicians are not spending money for which they are accountable. They are spending our money. And we are, to the politicians, virtually a bottomless pit. Yes, people leave California where taxes are too high, and New York, and Illinois, and other uh, red, other blue states, but not enough yet to cause the politicians to change their behavior. It is to the politicians a drop in the bucket. Therefore, the politicians will curry favor with the unions, I'll explain why in a moment, uh, and they will give the unions what they want, because after all, they have the bottomless pit of taxpayers. Now, why uh, are the politicians so willing to do that? Well, because first of all, when they enact, they agree to work rule changes or increases in salaries or benefits, those tax effects don't take effect the next day. They take effect a year or two or more out. By that time, those politicians will be off in another political activity. They will not be punished by the voters two years later because they won't be around. And they are, in the most classic sense, spending somebody else's money and they're making a problem for some other politician, not for themselves. So the dynamic lends itself to this abuse. And so the unions don't have any outside limitation on how much they can get. The politicians don't feel limited. Indeed, the politicians want to tell the voters, hey, we are providing you with better service. We are protecting working men and women to have a living wage. They sort of dress up their activity and the effect on the average taxpayer specifically is a couple of dollars. Collectively, it's big bucks, but a taxpayer's taxes go up by a couple of dollars. The union benefits are much greater. It is known in economic terms as concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. The unions fight very hard because the benefit to each union member is very high. The, the detriment to a taxpayer, an individual taxpayer, is relatively low. So the unions exert an effort commensurate with the benefit. Taxpayers are not that angry commensurate with the relatively low effect on a taxpayer. It is all a system that lends itself to abuse 
and it ignores all principle of sound economics. And that is why giving collective bargaining power to public service unions is contrary to everybody's best interest. And one last reminder, Craig, if I may, no other luminary than FDR, the the icon of progressive politics in America in the modern era, FDR knew and said publicly that unions, public service unions, should never be allowed to organize because they are an anathema to the democratic system. Well, if it scares FDR, it sure scares me. Well, and and rightfully so. And, you know, the, the broader issue here, to put this in context for listeners, then we're going to take it an even deeper layer, layer here. But, you know, it, it, ostensibly on the surface, it's about a balance of power, right? Private sector, you've got chief executive officer, chief financial officer, those top-level decision makers who are typically hired by and answerable to a board of directors. The board of directors is typically nominated and elected by the stockholders. So those who have a stake in the company and have an interest in the company and the management of same on one side of the table, and then you have the workers on the other side. And so unionization, collective bargaining, the ability to hold management feet to the fire in negotiating wages, work hours, things of this sort, um, you know, is trying to bring about some sense of parity between the two. The problem we get into when it is public unions is that typically there is no dividing line between the balance of power between the labor side and the the management or ownership side and that's largely because many of the positions of power the management side are positions that are politically appointed or elected positions so now when the same union who's trying to bring about a balance of power by being by the very nature of being union is up against the other side of the table whose managerial authority does not come from the board of directors and the shareholders but rather from the very rank and file of the people that they are trying to bring that balance of power with all of a sudden, you find essentially both sides of the table are representing the same side. What? Talk about that next with a syndicated talk show host, best-selling other Bob Zadek. Bob, by the way, tackles these issues and more every Sunday on his program. If you're a bit frustrated with the, the infighting, the shallowness of the Talking Head programs on Sunday morning, you'd like to go a little bit deeper, listen to not only newsmakers, but also opinion shapers, and we invite you to tune into the Bob Zadek Show. It's compelling listening every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock locally in the Bay Area on 860. AM The Answer, our sister station. You can also get more information about Bob Guests, past guests, podcasts, books, and more by checking out Bob's website at bobzadek.com. That's B O B Z A Z. I'm going to say it again B O B Z A D E K.com. It's not a difficult last name. Just that, you know, I've been on vacation trying to get the old chops back. BobZadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. A timeout back with more. So what happens when both sides of the table are on the same side? 
<laughs> that is Lifeline Continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So when you think about the issue of balance of power between ownership management on one side of the table and the, the rank and file worker bees on the other, you know, generally, generally the sense is we don't want to be too upsetting at an extreme on either side because we don't want the boss to fire us or shut the plant down or the business down. At the same token, the uh, plant management and ownership doesn't want workers striking and causing the plant to be shut down. So there's a little bit of a balance of power and 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 a little, how should we say, the, the threat of problems exist on both sides if everybody doesn't try to do at least some degree of, of trying to get along, particularly when they come and negotiate at the bargaining table. The problem when it comes to when it comes to government workers being union members and the people that they work for are in like we spoke earlier in the example of the police department where um, the police chief is is if not appointed by maybe the city council is a, a locally elected position you have many instances where there are positions of either politically appointed or elected politically so now when you empower the union to be able to influence the management side of things by saying we're going to put our weight behind getting you elected or making sure you never get elected again, all of a sudden there's a shift of the balance of power. And Bob Zadek, in my mind, that essentially sets up a grave imbalance where effectively the unions not only control the the negotiating side from the rank and file end of things, but by default, because of the political muscle that they can exercise, they also wind up having a tremendous amount of control over the management side. That seems to me that the whole notion of this being created in order to balance the power is just suddenly thrown the power completely out of balance. Craig, you raise a very important, two very important points, um, the balance of power that you just mentioned, and also a few sentences earlier, you mentioned the absence of accountability. Let's remember that in our system of government, we elect people to represent us, to pass the laws that represent um, our collective wisdom. We elect people to run the place in accordance with our instructions. We are the voters. Now, let's look at the effect of the unions. And let's focus on the police department, because you made the right decision and you started the show discussing police misbehavior. And when police misbehave, it is often mayors and sometimes chiefs of police who get criticized, fired, voted out of office, they get the blame. Well, much as I am suspect about the skill of many of those people who get voted out of office, let's remember that the police unions, and I'm not singling them out, they're, they're a good example, but they're only representative. The police unions have through collective bargaining, they have contracts that protect the worst police officers. For example, in many 
large cities, New York being a good example, the records of bad behavior of policemen are private. They cannot be disclosed. Therefore, they cannot be used to get the policemen fired. If the policemen leave the force and they go somewhere else to apply for another job, the new police force where they're applying for a job cannot learn that they were disciplined a dozen times or so by the old police force because the unions prohibit it. The unions, when uh, the, when there are the cams, the small cameras that policemen now wear on their clothing and on their um, police cruisers, those video cams, uh, that information cannot be disclosed until it's reviewed by lawyers representing policemen who are accused of misbehavior, things of that nature. In total, the union contracts are very protective of the worst police officers and the worst behavior. Now, so when we have bad acts like uh, the the uh, misbehavior of policemen, and like in, uh, I believe it was St. Louis, so uh, the misbehavior of policemen, that policeman in the Darren Chauvin case was disciplined a dozen times before that. He should have been fired long before he killed Mr. Chauvin. But he wasn't fired because the contract prohibited it. So who takes the heat? The entire police department gets publicly criticized. The police are out of control. No, they are not. Only the worst policemen are out of control, and they cannot be fired. Therefore, public respect for all policemen goes down, not because of the behavior of the police force in total, but because of the protection given to bad actors by collective bargaining. In New York City, you you shared a statistic earlier uh, about policemen. In New York City, one one teacher out of 10,000 gets fired. Now, does anybody believe that represents the number of bad teachers in the New York City school system? Well, of course not. But these contracts, the union contracts, protect only the worst. The good, the good performers in public service unions don't need protection. Their skill and their competence is their, all the protection they need. So the problem is the public service unions protect the worst. And politicians, to this degree, are kind of powerless because it is the contract. Take away collective bargaining and life in America immediately gets better to a substantial degree. Keep the unions, but remove collective bargaining. And speak, if you would, Bob, to this notion, as I mentioned earlier, that the lack of balance of power. I mean, it, it, you have to wonder, how did it get so that it, it, it slipped by that nobody took note of the fact that 
with the ability of unions to be able to not only collect dues, but to designate a portion of those dues toward political activities, and then in turn be able to run candidates that are favorable to the union, to be able to essentially seat their own people, so to speak, in the very same management positions that in the end would be deciding things like disciplinary action, who gets hired, who gets fired, etc., etc. I mean, all of a sudden now, any sense of a system of checks and balances has been completely wiped out and 100% of it to the detriment of the people that are not only depending upon the services, but also paying for the services, and that would be the taxpayer. I mean, it this seems to me to be more than just a bit of a whoops oversight. Well, not only that, Craig, but as you again correctly pointed out, the union members in public service unions are required by government to pay union dues. Well, the fact that it's government makes a difference because now the the First Amendment to the Constitution is implicated because if you're a union member and you happen to be conservative in your political orientation and you are forced to pay union dues to a union that espouses progressive views that you don't support, the Supreme Court has held just a few terms ago in a case called the Janus case, J-A-N-U-S, in the Janus case, that that was compelled speech. You union member were compelled to pay money to support speech you didn't approve of. And the Supreme Court said in the case of public service unions, that was unconstitutional. So insofar as that narrow issue of compelled union dues to support speech you don't approve of, the Supreme Court has provided some relief. As to the rest of what you say, yes, it is still there. Plus, the unions have have great power because they have tremendous staying power. And they say to the politicians, politicians come and go, but there is a phrase in union land called Weebywig, W-E-B-E-H-W-Y-G, Weebywig. You know what that stands for? We'll be here when you're gone. Poopoy. That's always, that's the way the unions remind the politicians, say what you want, Weebywig, we'll be here when you're gone. Bob Zadek, our guest, he will be here when we are gone, too. <laughs> well, at least if you're on the radio, tuned in and listening on Sunday morning, we invite you to check out the Bob Zadek Show. 8 a.m. Sunday mornings on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Complete details about past guests, podcasts, books, resources on guests, and more by checking out Bob's website at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a brief time out when we come back. Okay, we've pretty well analyzed the problem the lack of balance, the lack of parity, and quite frankly, the stranglehold that unions seem to have on the public sector. The big question is, based on where things stand today, how can we ever hope to right this wrong? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Interesting uh, looking at some news stories here during the break. Tesla employees in New York want to unionize because they're, quote, tired of being treated like robots. <laughs> Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts, along with syndicated talk show host, best-selling author and lawyer Bob Zadak. We've been talking about the problem of government employee unions and a variety of issues related to that, not least of which, as we mentioned a moment ago, is the notion that they have the political wherewithal to help influence who their bosses end up being by simply influencing the political process through elected positions, appointed politically appointed positions, et cetera, et cetera. When you look at this and you recognize the fact that the general public doesn't seem to be too terribly upset. If you go down to the DMV, you have a bad experience. No doubt you complain about that. But but overall, unlike the balance of power in private industry where the board of directors, the stockholders, upper management can get upset and can try and, and demand and negotiate changes here, who's going to do that? And I guess this, Bob Zadek, in in the closing moments of our conversation together tonight, really brings it full circle to if nobody is really complaining, though we all, I think, kind of recognize there really is a problem here, the, I guess, lingering question is what to do about that? How how do we go about reversing the, the damage that has been done? And continues to be done. And Craig, part of your question, which which I'm about to answer, but part of your question about the political power is that there are many vivid, dramatic examples of where public service unions, by their mere existence, they undermine the democratic process. A few examples are really interesting. In, Cal- in California, there was a prop, I believe it was 206, the number doesn't matter, to legalize marijuana. 60% of the voting public in California supported that proposition. Huge amounts of money were spent opposing the proposition. Who were the biggest contributors to oppose the legalization of marijuana? It was the prison guards' unions, because when marijuana is illegal, more people get arrested. If you're a prison guard, that's more customers. That's good for business. So there we have the public service unions undermining the will of the public. Now, they spent a lot of money. How could they afford to spend money? Well, because they got big salaries. Why did they get big salaries? Because the politicians gave them big salaries. So uh, the union members reward those politicians by getting out the vote to get them reelected. So the politicians support big salaries of public service unions who then reward the favor by taking the money they got from the public to support the politicians who gave them the raise. <laughs> the word for that in the English language, don't reach for your Webster's unabridged, is bribery. You want other examples? Think back to COVID. Schools were closed. Youngsters were deprived of 18 months of education. 
Why were the schools closed? We all know the answer. The teachers' unions. The parents wanted the schools open. Everybody, the employers wanted the schools open. The teachers' unions undermined the will of the public. In issue after issue, public service unions fight against the majority of will of the people. So the very the underpinnings of democracy are attacked by public service unions. And as you said, Craig, the imbalance is the money that goes to unions goes right back to the politicians who gave them the money to keep those politicians in office. Now, what do we do about it? Well, Craig, I often speak on my show about the most powerful weapon Americans have. It is not the ballot box. A person's vote obviously makes, a single vote makes very little difference. But what is called foot voting, voting with your feet, telling Gavin Newsom, I don't like this system of government, I'm going to Texas or Utah or Colorado or Florida. I'm going to vote with my feet to a different political system. Now, that is so powerful because when an individual votes with a ballot, they have no effect on their own life, obviously. No one has ever changed their life by how they voted. But how does your life change when you move profoundly? Foot voting affects the individual who is voting with their feet and it sends a lesson at the same time to the politician that we don't want your business anymore we are leaving and that has a collective effect upon politicians and happily that is happening before our very eyes as the states with the progressive government and high taxes to support it are leaving tax are leaving are losing their taxpayers and other states are gaining them and foot voting is the way craig is the way we will collectively effect a change in government yeah, certainly at the end of the day uh you know th- there has to be some sense of accountability and, uh, you know, frankly, as Bob suggests, there just is none here. And it's, it's such an insidious relationship that even if you do vote the right guy in or the right gal in with the right promises, eventually they become beholden regardless. And so it becomes just a, a revolving door. Bob Zadek dives into these issues and so many more every week on his program, talking with newsmakers and opinion shapers on The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Check him out online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. All right, 6 o'clock from KFAX. Let's get a timeout. Back with more Hour Number 2 coming up around the corner as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.